Hey there, welcome to Livewire. I'm your host, Luke Burbank. This week on the show, we are talking about joy, which we can all use more of in our lives, always. We're here to talk about writer and poet Ross Gay and his book, Inciting Joy, which he's going to read from. Then we're going to bond over stories of childhood skateboarding, which is going to be joyful. Uh, Then we're going to catch up with Michelin star chef and writer Elena Regan on why she loves cooking but doesn't love being a chef. She's going to explain the distinction. And then she's going to talk about her new book, Fieldwork, A Forager's Guide. Plus, we're finally going to get to the bottom of the rumor of if Elena once sold homemade ranch dressing at a Chicago farmer's market. She says she didn't. I'm not so sure. All that plus music from Baroque Betty in Mood Area 52. Our mood? Joyful that you're sticking around for Livewire, which gets started right after this. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of Livewire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, and then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Hey, Elena. Hey, Luke. How's it going? It's going pretty well. Are you ready to play a little station location identification examination? I sure am. This is where I quiz Elena about a place in the country where Livewire is on the radio. She's got to try to guess where I'm talking about. This, I'm just going to manage everyone's expectations. Let's just say it is a, a wonderful but but slightly boutique location in America, okay? Okay. So don't put too much pressure on yourself, all right? Okay. Uh, this city gets its name from the Choctaw language. It's derived from the word meaning red rock. And speaking of rock, rock legend Little Richard lived here at the time of his passing. This is where mm. Little Richard was living. Mm. Now, I know he's from Georgia originally, but... This is, this is not, I'll give you a hint. It's not in the state of Georgia, which leaves you 49 other possibilities. Mm. Uh, this city's Cascade Hollow Distillery is located along America's Whiskey Trail, and George Dickel Whiskey is produced in this place. Oh, I do believe you're talking about Chulahoma, Tennessee. Oh, my gosh. You have me at George Dickel, man. The the whiskey. I don't think I'd ever seen the name Chulahoma, Tennessee. That's where we're on WTML radio. My goodness. That is really impressive. All right. Shout out to everyone tuning in in Tullahoma, Tennessee on WTML. All right, should we get to the show? Yes, let's do it. All right, take it away. From PRX, it's... Livewire! 
This week, poet and essayist Ross Gay. The, the sort of notion of privilege, like, oh, you're privileged because you have a place to garden, or you're privileged because you have breathable air, is evidence actually of disprivilege. You know, it's evidence of a brutality. And chef and writer Elena Regan. Chefs are storming through kitchens and they're mad at their employees and they're, you know, like, ah, this thing needs to be this way. It's like, what's the point? With music from Baroque Betty, with Mood Area 52, and our fabulous house band. I'm your announcer, Elena Passarello, and now the host of Livewire, Luke Burbank. Hey, thank you so much, Elena Passarello. Thanks to everyone tuning in all across the country. We have an absolutely wonderful show in store for you this week. Uh, we asked the Livewire listeners a question. We asked, describe your perfect weekend. One of the people that we're interviewing this week, Elena Regan, runs this place in the woods of Michigan called the Milkweed Inn, and it is like the most perfect woodsy weekend you could ever imagine. So we're going to hear the listener response to that question, what their perfect weekend might be. Coming up first, though, it's time for the best news we heard all week. This is our little reminder at the top of the show that there is good news happening out there in the world. Elena, what's the best news you heard all week? Well, speaking of Tennessee and other great places across this country that have Waffle Houses, I have some Waffle House best news. This is a Waffle House in Little Rock, Arkansas, uh, where the Hunter family shows up for breakfast at least once every weekend. And they always request to sit in the section of a server there named Devante Gardner. Devante knows everybody's order, including eight-year-old Kazen. Kazen gets a high five every time he comes in, Mm. and then Devante knows that he wants uh, hash browns with cheese, which in um, Waffle House parlance is covered. Anyway, one day, Kazen was in that Waffle House with his grandfather, and he heard Mr. Gardner asking around on leads on a very cheap car, because it turns out he lives far away now from the Waffle House and has to walk several miles. This was Mr. Gardner, their typical server there at the Waffle House. Yeah, Devante Gardner, yeah. The apartment where he lived with his family, with his wife and two daughters, was uninhabitable because of a black mold problem. They had to move to a motel, and he was walking several miles from that motel to the Waffle House to go to work and make everybody smile like he normally does. So eight-year-old Kazen goes home and tells his mom. His mom and her husband actually had a black mold issue that made them have to leave a place where they used to live, so she totally empathized. And so she told Kazen it would be okay if they started a GoFundMe. So Kazen starts the GoFundMe asking for $5,000 to get Mr. Devante Gardner a new car. But then a local news station picks it up. Mm-hmm. And now $50,000 has been raised for this amazing Waffle House server. Wow. So I guess he's got a Tesla now. Yeah. Well, I think he's going to get a car plus a year's rent. Uh, it's going to oh, take wow. a little pressure off. And That's awesome. The, the gratitude in this story is just so amazing. It's the thing that makes me feel the best. Devontae Gardner says, I am thankful that I have a job that I enjoy, but it's really hard to save enough to improve my family's stations. But we are slowly working our way back. I love working at Waffle House because I have the opportunity to make people feel good every day. And when Kazen was asked about his act of generosity, he said, Sometimes people just need a little help, which is very Aww. cute and totally Good true. Good lesson to learn as a young kid. Absolutely. Um, speaking of food, the best news I saw this week involves pizza, where the sport of 
pizza acrobatics, what? also known sometimes as pizza freestyle, or for those not very much in the know, pizza tossing is finally getting its due. A great profile in the Washington Post of a guy named Tony Geminani, who has been competing in pizza acrobatics for like almost 35 years now. He started off when he was 17. He was working at his brother's pizzeria in Castro Valley, California. And he just noticed that he could kind of like do cool stuff with the pizza dough. Like he could throw it like a little higher. You know how like the sort of movie version of somebody making pizzas. Like cocktail, but for pizza. Right, (laughs) exactly. Well, he was just like really good at it. And he was throwing it higher and higher. And so then he started just kind of like seeing what the limits of what he could actually do was. And he got really good at it. Part of how he got good was he would sew these kind of like circular things that were like a pizza dough and then practice with them all day long when he wasn't at the pizzeria. And he got super good at it to the point where he's won like something like, well, he's won a total of 13 world championships in various parts of the pizza competitive space, Elena. Okay. So he's got seven of them are for pizza acrobatics. He's also won several Guinness world records, including largest pizza base spun in two minutes. By the way, that was 33.2 inches if you're scoring at home. Now, the reason that I found this so fascinating is because, do you know, I've actually watched the like world championships of this happening in Las Vegas. I attended something called the International Pizza Expo and Conference once in Las Vegas. <laughs> and I saw him there doing this. It is incredible. They're like on a stage. There's like pyrotechnics. There's loud music. They're spinning the pies. It's like actually very physical and takes a lot of practice and physicality. Anyway, Tony is now kind of transitioning into being sort of the... Um, elder statesperson mm-hmm. of the pizza acrobatics world. But what's cool is he's now, because he's like on YouTube and all these videos are out, he's getting young people into it, including women and other people who maybe, you know, wouldn't have traditionally been included in the pizzeria, pizza acrobatics world. So I can just say, having seen Tony in person, the guy is amazing and I'm glad he's finally getting his due. Pizza acrobatics, uh, being treated as the sport that it is, Elena. Sport of the future. That's right. Right up there with pickleball. The most delicious (laughs) sport that I know about. That's the best news that I heard all week. All right, let's get our first guest on over to the show. He's a New York Times bestselling author of The Book of Delights. He's also got four books of poetry out. The Boston Globe calls his latest book, Inciting Joy, a raucous affair with dancing, fabulous covers of all your favorite songs, tons of food, a backyard full of folks, and all their sorrows, too. Book Riot calls it essential reading. Uh, This is our friend Ross Gay, recorded at Town Hall in Seattle. Take a listen. Ross, welcome back to the show. Thanks. Good to be here. It's really nice to see you. Uh, the last time I think that we talked to you, we were talking about your a previous book, The Book of Delights, where you really um, kind of did a practice of finding something to be delighted about every single day and writing about it. Yeah. And now you've, you've got this uh, book, Inciting Joy. Did your previous book kind of feed naturally into this latest book? You know, probably because it did, um, as did the book before it, Catalog of Unabashed Gratitude, partly because people would be, you know, I'd have conversations with people about joy 
on account of the those two books, which I I was thinking about somewhat, but I wasn't thinking about it as a sort of long and maybe like lifelong sort of inquiry, you mm-hmm. know. Um, but after having enough conversations, it for sure felt like, oh, I could talk about this mm. and think about this for a long time. Did you have something that you wanted to do with this book, which is about joy, that didn't maybe happen with the previous book, which was about delight, or the one before it, which was about gratitude? I think one thing I wanted to like spin out, I wanted to write longer pieces. Uh-huh. You know, that was one thing for sure. I also felt like there's a couple impulses for writing the book. I, I mean, many. But one of them is that in some of those conversations, people would say things like, but how can you write about joy at a time like this? Mm-hmm. And my, my sort of immediate response, sort of in my head anyway, is like, that's a f- stupid question. <laughs> <laughs> but I get it. I get it. The noted joyful person, <laughs> Ross Gay, has checked in. Yeah, right, yeah. But I get it. And then so, you know, so then I had to write this introduction where I sort of raise the question. I, I articulate that in a different way. <laughs> Actually, I was wondering, could you read from, from the book a little bit, actually, that part? Because I found it to be a really interesting interrogation of this idea um, that I think you say something like, it's a sort of a dangerous fantasy, you write, yeah, to think yeah. that joy means without pain. Yeah. And, yeah. and I was wondering if you kind of read the, the part of the book that sort of fleshes that idea out yeah, a little bit. Right, right, right. But what happens if joy is not separate from pain? What if joy and pain are fundamentally tangled up with one another? Or even more to the point, what if joy is not only entangled with pain or suffering or sorrow, but is also what emerges from how we care for each other through those things? What if joy, instead of refuge or relief from heartbreak, is what effloresces from us as we help each other carry our heartbreaks? Which is to say, what if joy needs sorrow? Or what Zadie Smith in her essay, Joy, calls the intolerable for its existence? If it sounds like I'm advocating for sorrow, nope. Besides, sorrow, unlike joy apparently, doesn't need an advocate. Given as, to quote the visionary blind man Pazzo in Samuel Beckett's play, Waiting for Godot, were born, quote, astride a grave. I.e., we and everyone and everything we love will one day, maybe today, die. I think sorrow's going to be just fine. <laughs> like Gwendolyn Brooks says about death, one of sorrow's chauffeurs, it's, quote, just down the street, his most obliging neighbor can meet you at any moment, end quote. Or, as the Jackson 5 sing, not in the voice of sorrow, but kind of, <laughs> I'll be there. <laughs> but what I am advocating, and adamantly so, is that rather than quarantining ourselves or running from sorrow, rather than warring with sorrow, we lay down our swords and invite sorrow in. I'm suggesting we make sorrow some tea from the lemon balm in the garden. We let sorrow wash up and take some of our clothes. We give sorrow our dad's slippers that we've hung on to for 15 years for just this occasion. And we drape our murdered buddy's scarf, still smelling of Nag Champa, over sorrow's shoulders to warm them up some. We wedge some wood in the fire. As we're refilling their tea, we notice sorrow is drinking from a mug given to us by someone we've hurt. That's Ross Gay reading from Inciting Joy. This is Livewire from PRX. We are talking to writer and poet Ross Gay about his new book, 
inciting joy. When we get back, we're going to talk to Ross about something that he and I were both very obsessed with as kids, and that would be skateboarding. So stick around for that. Back with more Livewire in just a moment. Hey, Elena. Hey, Luke. I didn't see you there. It's that time of year again. My seasonal allergies are back. Oh, congratulations. But also, it's our spring member drive, which is happening right now through May 17th. Oh, I like that much more than seasonal allergies. Yeah, if you are not yet a member of Livewire's League of Extraordinary Listeners, well, now is the time to do it. Why? Well, because this League of Extraordinary Listeners uh, is what keeps the lights on over at Livewire Inc., uh, which is definitely not the association that we are part of. I'm probably a 501c3. They don't let me near any of the paperwork mm -hmm. or bookkeeping, and it's really better that way. Yes. Point is, we... We are only able to keep doing this show because of support from our members, and we would love it if you could join us in that right now. Plus, there are all kinds of sweet perks, including uh, special discounted tickets to live recordings, on-air shout-outs, exclusive content. Uh, and, Elena, uh, one more thing that, of course, we would not be a self-respecting public radio show if we didn't offer this. If we didn't offer the most iconic public radio swag of all time, a tote bag. True iconic status. Yeah, but it's not just any tote bag. This is like a really good tote bag. It's got a second zipper, an internal zipper. Yes, whatever you want to put in the tote bag, that's your business, okay? What we're mm -hmm. here to talk about is you keeping Livewire going. So head on over to livewireradio.org to see the various member levels. It does not matter how much you are giving every month to Livewire. It just matters that you do it because it goes a long way for us. So thank you. Vacations, weddings, birthdays, and reunions. Oh my, there's so much going on. Get the most out of your spring plans by stocking up on pre-alcohol now. Zbiotics pre-alcohol probiotic drink is the world's first genetically engineered probiotic. It was invented by PhD scientists to tackle rough mornings after drinking. Here's how it works. When you drink, alcohol gets converted into a toxic byproduct in the gut. It's this byproduct, not dehydration, that's to blame for your rough next day. Zbiotics produces an enzyme to break this byproduct down. Just remember to make Zbiotics your first drink of the night, drink responsibly, and you'll feel your best tomorrow. Go to zbiotics.com/livewire to get 15% off your first order when you use livewire at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with 100% money back guarantee, so if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember to head to zbiotics.com/livewire and use the code livewire at checkout for 15% off. Thank you to Zbiotics for sponsoring this episode and our good times. All right, welcome back to Livewire. Coming to you. This week from Town Hall, we're talking to Ross Gay about his incredible latest book, Inciting Joy. Um, one of the things that you write about in this book is this question of privilege, because to say gardening, which is something that you love, incites yeah. joy for you, yeah. naturally raises the question, what about people who don't have access to a garden? Mm -hmm. Or what about people who don't have access to the things that can incite joy for us? Uh, and you talk about it in a really interesting way. Can you kind of explain that? Yeah, I sort of... You know, I've been thinking a lot about this. The term privilege is, is, is 
Almost, it's sort of, I mean, there's many things. One thing is that just saying privilege almost feels, to, it seems like some people think to, to say that is an action, mm-hmm. you know? And, and that ultimately what privilege, the, the sort of notion of privilege, like, oh, you're privileged because you have a, a place to garden, or you're privileged because you have, um, you know, breathable air, mm-hmm. or you're privileged because you can drink the water that comes out of your tap, or you're privileged because you're not getting beat up by a cop. Or you're privileged because on and on and on and on, which obscures the fact that to have all of those things happen to you is, is evidence actually of disprivilege. You know, it's evidence of a brutality. And furthermore, it's evidence of a brutality that is, that is action. So privilege is a way, you know, to say privilege often is a way to actually obscure this thing. Privilege just sort of almost makes it natural. You know, oh, it's just privilege. That's just the way it is. Mm-hmm. I'm privileged. Bummer. <laughs> when in fact it's like no you know the reason there's lead in the water is because people let there be lead in the water right that's you not know? a privilege no it's not a privilege yeah. it, it's, a, it's not a privilege not to be poisoned right you know <laughs> right it's a disprivilege right. to be poisoned I believe know? you describe it as violence in the book in other words yeah. the people who are not having the privilege of a garden it's in a way to not have access to like again breathable air drinkable yeah. water that's the violence yeah. right, right? Yeah, exactly. that everyone should be able to have a garden and drink the water if is you your want, yeah yeah if you want to have a garden you should or you want to be able to get into a garden you should be able to get into a garden if you want to have a, be able to have an, i say in the book like a relationship with a tree you know you want to be able to like smell flowers you want to be able to harvest you want to be able to you know pitch in to do all of this sort of processes that that um, affords one you know the the gifts that that sort of you know gives you that that just ought to be life mm-hmm. the absence of that or or the withholding of that because it's a withholding is is a brutality you write about two things in this book that were the complete kind of cornerstones of my life as a kid which were pickup basketball and skateboarding <laughs> <laughs> which is part of why i enjoyed this book so much um i was wondering if you could read a little bit from uh the chapter it's it's uh, share your bucket it's the fifth incitement and it's about skateboarding. Could you could you read from that? Because you brought up something that I had I never really thought about, but it was totally my lived experience with me and my buddies and swapping stuff mm. on our boards. And oh, you got those new OJs <laughs> and the the kind of communal nature of being into skateboarding. Yes, share your bucket. Skateboarding, the fifth incitement. Perhaps somewhat telling is that when Stephanie and I were counseled by our couples therapist to spend some time imagining a safe place before entering a difficult conversation, I didn't choose a mountain stream or a forest or a glade or a meadow or a beach. I chose, along with a basketball court, a curb at the IGA at Pine Watson Shopping Center in Langhorne, Pennsylvania, (laughs) where one weekend night after hours, my buddy Jay and I, when we were in our late teens, dragged one of the shopping carts to the curb, tipped it over, Then pushing on our skateboards beneath the flickering lights beneath the plaza's overhang toward the cart at the end of the curb, in one sometimes seamless motion, we would get our feet right, bend just a touch, and ollie over the cart into the dark. Or tired of that, we rail slid the cart, or tried to ollie it long ways. Maybe we stood the cart up on its wheels and tried going over it that way. All of these attempts, I'm noticing this now, from some light into dark which is a nice metaphysical metaphor for our inquiry into joy. Skating on a John Lucero hand-me-down given to me by my friend Mike with rat bones, which wheels Jay gave me earlier that day, inside of which are some very smooth bearings that Adam gave to him, ollieing into the mystery. The metaphysical metaphor being that submission to mystery is a possible source of joy. Noted. Also, of course, is that I am skating with a beloved pal, 
ollieing into the dark under the watchful gaze of someone doing the same. That seems relevant, too. We are steadying each other, beholding each other, flying into the dark. It is to that feeling, which, if I were to locate it, is in my chest, and it is the feeling of groundlessness that I go before a tough chat. Footnote. Worth noting, too, how often we fall skating. Though also worth noting, you see how I wrote it a few sentences ago, is that skateboarding, at least between the mid-80s and mid-90s, was one of the many places the gift economy was in radical action, (laughs) by which I mean in practice. (laughs) It was just the case that whatever you had extra, and skateboarding with its many components, decks, wheels, bearings, trucks, bushings, riser pads, rails, rip grip, bolts, etc., made for extra, you passed along. Most of us had a bucket of some sort where, when someone needed something, we dug around to find it. I never once heard anyone express it as an ethics, sharing, redistribution, common wealthing. <laughs> Though if you tried to keep your extra to yourself, if you spoke to no one of your bucket, and then it got out you had one, <laughs> and, and gleaming like gold in that extra independent truck, independent to brand name, A truck is the thing that holds the wheels on. (laughs) Was the kingpin, the kingpin's the thing that holds the truck together. (laughs) One of us needed to skate that day. The reaction would be an ethical one. Yo, that's up, man. (laughs) Also worth noting is that skateboarding's reemergence, at least in the U.S., is almost perfectly concurrent with a new gilded age, a grotesque accumulation and celebration of wealth deregulation, the dismantling of the welfare state, mass incarceration, NAFTA, taking the solar panels off the roof of the White House, privatization of everything, further enclosure of the commons, and the unabashed, unapologetic, mongering sanctification of hoarding, of the horde. It is probably for this reason, the aforementioned ethics, I'm saying, that if you were ever inclined to go down a YouTube rabbit hole watching Mark Gonzalez, the Sun Ra of skateboarding, or possibly even the Dizzy Gillespie of skateboarding, the Andy Kaufman of skateboarding, (laughs) you would find that in fully one-third of his abundant footage, from when he was a skinny California kid in the mid-'80s all the way to his present-day full-figured middle-aged technical goofballery, (laughs) he is encountering, negotiating with, cajoling, resisting, or running from the so-called law, owners or cops, bought and rented, usually because he is skating somewhere he should not be, which is most everywhere. Probably because there's a perfect rail or a sweet bit of transition to a gap or a set of stairs calling him. Dude's been at it for decades. He's made it. He's a grown-ass man. Why doesn't he just buy his own skate park? He should know better. But he never learns. One reason Gans is among the trillion beating hearts of skateboarding, and in this he is in no way singular or the best. Gans is just one of a trillion apostles of the form. Is because he usufructs the skatable world which includes benches, picnic tables, walls, handrails, flights of steps, curves, fire hydrants, ledges, parking lots, sidewalks, driveways, loading docks, loading ramps, bus stops, parking garages, schoolyards, drainage ditches, streets, alleys, walls, i.e. the built environment, whether new or in disrepair. In other words, the only limitation to what might be skated or made public or commoned or shared is the imagination. That's Ross Gay. Reading from Inciting Joy uh, here on Livewire. As a, as, a, as a kid who grew up 
really, really wanting my parents to dedicate our entire backyard in Seattle to a half pipe, which never happened. It would have been the entirety of the backyard. <laughs> I was so jealous of people who had either like a ramp or access to a skate park or whatever. But you write in this book that you're kind of glad that you didn't grow up where there were skate parks everywhere. Yeah, and it's funny. Um, so many things. It's funny to get to an age where I'm like, oh, man, I'm so glad we didn't have that then. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and among them, I talk about water. You know, I mean, we had water, but we didn't have bottled water. And <laughs> right. it was amazing. Um, and we, you know, we, we didn't have cell phones. It was amazing. Mm-hmm. We could get lost and be alone. It was incredible. Oh, my God. <laughs> Children, you don't know what you're missing. <laughs> but the other thing, yeah, like that, that sort of experience of like walking around the world as I still do, I'm 48 years old, and like every once in a while, I'll skateboard, I'll putter around. But I always walk around and I look at the city, the built environment. I'm like, ooh, mm-hmm. you could skate that. <laughs> you know, there's oh, that's to be skated. You know, again and again. And which the way that I think of it, it is kind of like you're being trained to sort of witness or being trained to sort of observe how everything is something else. Mm. You know, so you're being trained in metaphor in a way, you know, <laughs> yeah. which to me feels like a, a profound sort of actually survival skill. Wow. You know, oh, you could use this for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, that's Ross Gay here on Live Where Everyone. The new book is Inciting Joy. Ross, thank you so much. That was Ross Gay right here on Live Wire, recorded at Town Hall in Seattle. His latest book, Inciting Joy is available now. Hey, special thanks this week to Miriam Fearley of Portland, Oregon, and Michael Smith of Everett, Washington. Miriam and Michael are part of the Livewire member community and are generously supporting the show with a donation each month. They're in the League of Extraordinary Listeners, y'all. And that support is really big because it's how we're able to keep doing Livewire. So thanks to Miriam and Michael for keeping the show going. This is Livewire, as we do each week. We asked the Livewire listeners a question. We wanted to know what their perfect weekend might be like. Lena has been collecting up those answers. What do you see? Well, uh, I read these a little too quickly. And when I saw D's, I got really excited <laughs> because, well, D actually wrote a Catan tournament, which I believe is some kind of board game. Okay. Like Settlers of Catan. I believe that's a, a, a like a board game that's very involved that people get really into. Yeah. Yeah. So that is what D would include in D's Perfect Weekend. But I misread it as a Caftan tournament, <laughs> which I would totally attend <laughs> and win. You are- you know, I started early in the show talking about the, uh, you know, Pizza Acrobatics Championship. I would say Caftan, uh, Settlers of Caftan would be an only slightly more niche sport, and you would be the reigning world champion. I don't know anyone who owns more Caftans than you. I bought three Caftans the week of my 40th birthday. Like, I was just trying <laughs> to, like, manifest my Golden Girls future. <laughs> it's working. Absolutely. Thank you. Uh, what's another perfect weekend for one of our listeners? Here's a, a blast from the past from Heather. Heather's perfect weekend, GTL, baby, gym, tan, and laundry. Whoa. Are you familiar with the GTL sect? Oh, I very much am. You know, that would be a Jersey Shore reference, I believe, right? That was how they used to do. I wonder if they ever opened, like, you know, they have like a Kentaco hut 
like a Pizza Hut, Kentucky Fried Chicken, Taco Bell. Somebody should have made a place where you could do your laundry, get tan, and work out all in the same fused space. I mean, there would be a convenience to that, certainly. (laughs) Okay, one more before we move on. I love Aaron's perfect weekend, which is watching a true crime documentary on Friday and then being too afraid to leave my house for the rest (laughs) of the weekend. (laughs) Yes, I have definitely experienced that myself. Anytime anyone says that I light up a room, I'm always terrified that I'm going to be on the next Forensic Files because that is the thing that- You need to really watch out. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) All right. Thank you to everyone who sent in their response to our question this week. We've got one for next week's show, which we will reveal in just a few moments. In the meantime, our next guest's life started on a small farm in Indiana before she made her way to Chicago, where she ran her own Michelin-starred restaurant. These days, you can find her in the remote woods of Michigan, where she runs the Milkweed Inn, the most amazing weekend experience that you will never get a reservation for. (laughs) It's booked out for, like, years. Her latest book is The Really Incredible Fieldwork, A Forager's Guide. Take a listen to this. It's our conversation with Elena Regan right here on LiveWire. Hi, Elena. Hey. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Um, You write in, in this book that you had like an awakening in 1984, which would have made you like five years old. Yeah, I mean, yes. Around there. <laughs> Ish, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 1984, when, what happened? You went foraging with your family and something like clicked? I think I was already doing that prior to 1984, but I think what that was like when me as the writer here now could actually think about, well, when was it that I could remember like enough to, you know, kind of channel these stories and be able to talk about them and write about them. And so I focus on that year, 1984, because that's when I could really pull that information. Thanks. Sure. <laughs> uh, by by so, the way, backstage, you were like very proud. You're like, I have my reading glasses with yeah, me. Yeah, but then I didn't bring the little... <laughs> Cleaner? Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, wait, what, what well, is it? Have it. <laughs> <laughs> Clean. Why don't you go ahead and get, get your readers ready? I know you're going to ask me to read song. <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to, I should have did this when Nip. I was just back there farting around. This is... <laughs> <laughs> I should have had this done. Like, that's the chef part of me talking, like, why the hell did you not have your readers ready? Uh, well, speaking of, of, of being a chef, you didn't go to culinary school, right? But do you write in this book about you growing up in a family of people that could cook? Do you feel like cooking is hereditary, is something you can inherit? Well, I don't know if it's hereditary or able to inherit, but I think that there is something to intuition. And if you grow up maybe in an environment where you're surrounded by people who are cooking or foraging in that sort of um, way, that maybe some of that could get implanted into you. And I'm currently learning about recipes that my family has that almost I feel like I learned through osmosis, through my mom or um, somehow through like my DNA like or my ancestors like I talk about in this book whispering to me. And of course, like, sure, maybe that's just um, multiple personalities or something. <laughs> <laughs> um, I feel like there is some sort of channeling that's going on, so... 
I want to make sure that I have your your kind of journey with with food correct. So from the book, you as a teenager, you were bussing tables at an Italian restaurant, <laughs> and then you make your way into the kitchen, and you end up working at uh, Alenia, which is like one of the greatest restaurants in the world in Chicago. Yeah, and I mean, then, not anymore. Right, you, well, okay, when you were there. <laughs> wow, shots fired. <laughs> I think, I don't think we're on in Chicago, so say whatever you want. Um, and then you, you, you walked away from Alenia to make your own ranch dressing and sell it at a farmer's market. And then, it's, and, then, and then eventually start your own restaurant, which won a Michelin star every single year that you were running it. Um, and then you more or less gave that restaurant to some of your employees yeah, and I then mean, went yes. to the woods of Michigan. Yeah. I mean, for the most part, that's the gist. Yeah. <laughs> you got the, uh, the ranch dressing. I, don't, I mean, that never happened. Okay, so there there is a part in my other book, Burn the Place, where if at this Italian restaurant, if you take this bread that's like from Toronto and you know the Toronto bakeries, and you put it in the oven, and then you dip it in like the craft dressing that probably came in a vat. And then you put, like, I don't know, some sort of manufactured Parmesan cheese on it. I mean, it's fantastic. So it's like uh, you can have an epiphany having ranch dressing. And I think that was a little bit in my last book. I had read somewhere. I I'd think read... I made pierogies at the farmer's market, okay. not the ranch. I, some, somewhere. <laughs> we have to, we've got to get someone to take down an article where it talks about you making homemade ranch dressing. because. I, I mean, I've made homemade I, ranch I just loved dressing. that for your bio so much much. I guess I wanted it to be true. Um, now, by the way, we're talking to Elena Regan about her book, Fieldwork, a forager's memoir here on Livewire Radio. One of the things that you, you said in the book is that you really like cooking, but you don't like being a chef. Well, I mean, okay, here's the thing. There's essentially, I'm in the business of entertainment, right? In, in a way that as a chef and having a restaurant, I'm performing. And I don't want to get into all the moral dilemmas that I have with that, um, not only like environmentally, but also just physically, mentally, whatever. We don't have time for that in this 15 minutes. <laughs> what I can say I appreciate say you is producing that... the show on the fly. <laughs> Good looking out. I think that as chefs, sometimes people are taking themselves too seriously mm. and they're causing a whole lot of other like young people who are interested in food and interested in creation uh, artistically or whatever, um, a lot of strife. I think that everything's getting taken too seriously, has been for a long time. It's not brain surgery, it's entertainment. So I love actually being a chef and I love entertaining people and I love cooking for others. But I think some of that pressure and some of those ideas around it where chefs are storming through kitchens and they're mad and they're mad at their employees and they're, you know, like, ah, oh, this thing needs to be this way is just so, it's like, what's the point? Hmm. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So now, so now, if I understand it right, if you yell at an employee, it's your wife? <laughs> yes. Absolutely. She pisses me off. <laughs> because you and your wife now run the Milkweed Inn in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, yeah. which is a sort of phenomenon unto itself, um, because it's this 
incredibly beautiful location with what sounds like an amazing time for a very, very small number of people during the summer months. You pick yeah. them up at the truck stop? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah and I, well, the reason why I wanted to do that was to kind of go back to my roots because when I started out, I was like, um, okay, long story short, I don't want to do all this working through kitchens with all these tyrannical chefs. I'm going to do my own thing, sell pierogies at the farmer's market, not ranch dressing. All right. But <laughs> Agree to disagree. <laughs> I'm hearing different things. I mean, the, ins the inspiration comes from somewhere. <laughs> now, now, I'm going to make some ranch dressing. Please do. Pierogi Sunday. <laughs> but <laughs> anyways, so um, I have this little like underground thing at my house where I serve 10 people on Fridays and 10 people on Saturdays. And this is when you're living in Chicago. Right. And then it forms into a restaurant, which was my goal. And then um, eventually I'm like, I don't want a restaurant anymore. <laughs> I don't want to have employees. I don't want to do this whole thing. But it was so much more sustainable just doing it small, being able to actually go out and forage myself or grow the things myself. I mean, it's a lot of hard work and it's just as much of a headache in a different way than it is of doing books or payroll or all those things. But at least I know that at Milkweed, to get through one service, I'm not using like 500 gallons of water a day, or I don't have the electricity going on all day. And some of the natural resources that we use in just one day in this entertainment business is a lot in just one restaurant in one city that serves 25 people. I have these dilemmas, like when I was at the airport this morning, I was thinking like, what if just one airport in this country like just didn't have any meat anymore you know like just just one i'm sure it piss a lot of people off that wouldn't go over well at the buffalo wild wings <laughs> right but just like you know what i yeah. mean so like i'm sitting here getting at the airport getting ready to come here and i'm just like whoa why am i having these thoughts but at the same time it's good <laughs> thoughts and this is frustrating and i'm like i just need to go back to bed <laughs> but <laughs> you know yeah. that that's the whole thing anyways you'll read in this book if you do get my book that um there's a lot of things that keep me up at night <laughs> so <laughs> you won't be surprised about that actually can we hear a little bit from the book fieldwork because it yeah. is a forager's memoir and you do talk a lot about all of these amazing things that that you forage particularly mushrooms. So could you read a little yes. bit about that? Yeah. Um, this is from chapter 15 called Ephemeral Sexual Organ. <laughs> it's, it's not that sexy. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So uh, we're going to kind of start in a couple paragraphs in. Mushrooms are sexy. Some are multi-gendered. Others are male and some are female. Some reproduce together and some are asexual, able to reproduce on their own. Mushrooms are more like animals than plants, but I don't know exactly how. I'm not a mycologist. I'm not a botanist or an anthropologist. I'm just a person who prefers mushrooms to people and trees to tall buildings. A person who spends many hours alone thinking too much about what I'm thinking. I do study some of what I write about. I have tried to understand how mushrooms reproduced, and the best explanation I've heard was told to me by my friend Rebecca, who is a mycologist. The fruiting body is the ephemeral sexual organ of the mushroom. The rest of the organism resides underground as mycelium, the part that we see just fruits to fulfill a reproductive function. 
She told me this and I wondered if this was why mushrooms tasted so good. In any case, mushrooms are fascinating. <laughs> people hunt them, dream about them, fall in love with them. Some people even have festivals to celebrate different seasons and species of them. And out of the many wildly beautiful organisms in the forest, mushrooms will more often than not stop you in your tracks for a closer look. On August 17, 1979, sometime in the late morning, I fruited. Okay, so... <laughs> I shouldn't have put my actual birth date in there, not because I'm afraid of how old you guys know that I am, because it's not that old. So it's, I'm sorry, apologize to anybody older than me in the audience. <laughs> but um, just don't go looking for my mom's maiden name and things like that, okay? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, on August 1st, 1979, sometime in the late morning, I fruited. I was swaddled against Mom's chest by the time Dad got to the hospital. He was dusty from Grandpa's farm. He'd been out on the tractor in Grandpa's field, sculpting a new patch of land for next season's corn when he got the call that Mom was in labor. He had two sheep's head mushrooms bundled in paper napkins. He stood in the hospital room's doorway, the mushrooms swaddled against his chest. He stepped into the room, and with his free arm, he reached out for me. Mom turned, shielding me from his reach. She told him to wash himself off first. He set down the mushrooms on the tray table at her bedside. After he washed up, he held me for a couple of minutes. Passing me back to Mom, he said, found two sheep's head. <laughs> and nodded to where he had set them. Come real early this year. Been some good rain, though, he said, scratching his cheek. I never found him this early before. Mom didn't respond right away. She was exhausted, but awake enough to tell him to move the mushrooms from her tray table. <laughs> <laughs> the sun rose over the window. A distant church bell confirmed it was noon. The window was open, and a fan churned where it was propped against the screen. A couple of bees, pulled by the fan, bumped against the screen. The air of the room, 3E, was warm and thick and smelled a fresh baby in starched hospital sheets. Dad sat in a chair beside the bed. In Mom's arm, I was seven pounds and a few ounces against her breast. My sisters would arrive soon, but were late as well. Dad asked what was taking them so long. Mom didn't answer, figuring whatever it was, they were up to no good. Dad pressed the shiny pads of his callous palms together and hung his hands down between his knees like he was praying to the floor. Elena Regan, reading from her book Fieldwork here on Livewire. That was Elena Regan, recorded in front of a live audience at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon. Elena's book, Fieldwork, A Forager's Guide, is available now. Also, if you would like to hear more from that conversation, please check out the Livewire podcast where we, as you remember, Elena, uh, our Elena, we had <laughs> other Elena play a round of metal or mushroom <laughs> where she had to decide That's if right. we were describing a famous metal band name or an actual mushroom species. Harder than you think. Yeah, it thrashed most hard. So <laughs> check out the Livewire podcast for that. 
This is Live Wire Radio from PRX. We've got to take a quick break, but don't go anywhere. When we come back, we are going to hear some delightful music from singer-songwriter Baroque Betty, accompanied by Mood Area 52. Sounds mysterious. Stick around to find out what we're talking about here on LiveWire. LiveWire is thrilled to be partnering with Portland's own Portal Tea this season, formerly known as Tea Chai Tay. Portal Tea is the premier tea company in the Pacific Northwest, and they make one-of-a-kind handcrafted tea blends like cinnamon churro chai and blueberry cream Earl Grey. Use the code LiveWire, all lowercase, for 20% off at portaltea.co. This is LiveWire. Before we get to our musical guest, a little preview of next week's show. We're going to be talking to food writer Cecily Wong about her book, Gastro Obscura, which features fascinating food stories from all over the world, including psychedelic honey that was used as a weapon. (laughs) Uh, We're also going to check in with Grammy Award nominee Andrew Bird about how he balances being kind of a painfully shy person with also being a, a very public figure and how he used whistling as a security blanket when he was acting in the TV show Fargo. And he's going to play a song from his latest album as well. So that is the plan for next week. Do tune in for that. In the meantime, Elena, what are we asking the listeners for that episode? We want to know what is a yum for you that is a yuck for most other people. So something that uh, somebody really likes, but a lot of other people have been like, why do you like that kind of thing? Exactly. I can't wait to hear these yummy yucks. All right. If you have an answer uh, to that question, something that's a yum for you that a lot of other people say is a yuck, you can submit it via Twitter or Facebook. We're over at LiveWire Radio pretty much everywhere. This is LiveWire from PRX. Our musical guest this week hails from Eugene, Oregon, and has built a dedicated following of both fans and musicians, including Woody Platt from the Steep Canyon Rangers, who describes her sound as striking and spectacular. Take a listen to this. It's Baroque Betty, accompanied by Mood Area 52, recorded live at the Holt Center in Eugene, Oregon. What song are we going to hear? Uh, this is the title track to my album. It's called Sobering Up.
accompanied by Mood Area 52 right here on Livewire. Her album, Sobering Up, is available now. All right, that's going to do it for this episode of the show. A huge thanks to our guests, Ross Gay, Elena Regan, and Baroque Betty, along with Mood Area 52. Livewire is brought to you by Alaska Airlines. Laura Haddon is our executive producer. Heather D. Michelle is our executive director. Our producer and editor is Melanie Sepchenko. Our assistant editor is Trey Hester. Our marketing manager is Paige Thomas. Our production fellow is Tunvi Kumar. And Yasmin Median is our intern. Our house band is Ethan Fox Tucker, Sam Tucker, A.L. Alves, and A. Walker Spring, who also composes our music. Molly Pettit is our technical director, and our house sound is by D. Neil Blake. Additional funding provided by the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation. Livewire was created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. This week, we'd like to thank members Miriam Fierley of Portland, Oregon, and Michael Smith of Everett, Washington. For more information about our show or how you can listen to our podcast, head on over to livewireradio.org. I'm Luke Burbank for Elena Passarello and the whole Livewire crew. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week.
Dear Livewire, when we first met, I was really shy. I had no idea we'd spend so much time together or that you'd be one to fill my heart with, with joy and make me want to be a better person. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were here. I was busy reading a review from one of our many, many rapturously smitten listeners. Oh, wait, actually, no, sorry. This is from Elena. Anyway, the point is, uh, it would be really helpful if you wanted to leave us a review. Feel free to say really nice things about us, and uh, we'll even read them now and then on the show. So you might hear your review of Livewire read on the program itself. Uh, reviews help other people hear about the show, and then we can keep doing this for a long, long time because we love having this job. Uh, thank you so much if you've left a review, and if you're about to leave a review, you can go ahead and do it right where you get the podcast. <laughs>